the Seljuk Sultan, Al-Barslan, always met his defeated enemies in person. So it was that he had the Roman Emperor, Romanus Diogenes, brought before him. The Emperor was covered in the blood and dirt of battle, his military guard was in tatters, and there was nothing in his appearance to suggest his royal status. By contrast, the Sultan Al-Barslan looked as regal as ever, and his supreme victory was confirmed when the Emperor fell to his knees before the Sultan, and the Sultan kicked him and placed his boot on the Emperor's neck. But then, he had the Emperor stand, and he spoke to him as an equal. What would you have done if you had me thus in hand? asked the Sultan of the Emperor. Diogenes may have been humbled, but he was still the Roman Emperor, and so he answered with brutal honesty, saying, Know that I would have consumed your body with many wounds. The Sultan replied, By God he spoke the truth, and if he had said other than this, he would have been lying. This man is intelligent and strong, and it is not permissible to kill him. And what do you now think I should do with you? Diogenes answered, It is not useful to mention it, for you will not do it. What is it? asked Kalbarslan. Pardon me and accept in return wealth, gifts, and peace, and my promise to return to my kingdom as your slave. If you kill me, I shall be of no use to you, for they will put another in my place. And this was what the Sultan did. Romanos spent eight days with the Sultan and was treated as an honored guest, and the Emperor even ate from the Sultan's table. This time was also spent haggling over the price of the Emperor's life, though we had to admit to the Sultan that the once great wealth of the Romans had been squandered, and the ransom would have to be a pitiful sum. But after eight days, the two men parted ways, never to meet again. They would both soon be dead. Back in Constantinople, the Romans had felt no need to wait to replace Romanos, and after a brief civil war, he was defeated and subjected to a botched blinding that soon became infected and led to the emperor's death. If Romanos' undoing was the trust he had placed in the empire, Al-Barslan's undoing was the trust he placed in himself. A year later, Al-Barslan had another ruler taken prisoner brought before him. This man, however, had snuck a dagger in his robes, and when face to face with the Sultan, he pulled it out and lunged. The Sultan motioned to his guards to stand down and pulled a bow to defend himself. After all, he was a Sultan, a master marksman. But his foot slipped, the arrow went wide, and the assassin's dagger found its mark, mortally wounding the Sultan, who died four days later. Al-Barslan's short reign proved to be merely a preface for the 20-year rule of his son, Malik Shah. And as for the Roman Emperor, Diogenes became a tragic figure for the Romans, betrayed by the empire he had fought tooth and nail to defend. And his loss at Manzikert is remembered to this day as the moment which sealed the fate of the crumbling Roman Empire. Welcome to History of the Uchermer, Episode 6, All Roads Lead to Manzikert. The Battle of Manzikert marks a turning point in history. It has an outsized role in both the history of the decline of the Eastern Roman Empire and the birth of Turkey. Indeed, the modern Republic of Turkey already has plans for the millennial celebration, which should be in 50 years. But what really happened 
and how much did it truly shape the region in the decades to come? Today, we'll be taking a look at the conflict from both sides and the immediate consequences. When last we left the Seljuk Turks in 1063, their first sultan, Tugrul, had died, leaving behind an enormous empire spanning from Syria to Persia. And his sheer power was such that the Romans themselves recognized the sultan as the supreme ruler of all Islam. When he died childless, though, he left his lands to his infant nephew, Suleiman, under the care of the vizier, Kunduri. Well, technically, he'd left them to his stepson. See, when Tugrul's brother, Chagri, had died, in accordance with an old Turkic tradition, Tugrul had married his brother's widow, his sister-in-law, and in this way, his nephews became his stepsons. I will try to resist the urge to make a what-are-you-doing, step-sultan joke. Tried and failed. Anyway, to the east, Suleiman's older brother, Al-Barslan, whose name means heroic lion, was not having any of this. If you recall from episode 4, the Seljuks had divided up their lands. Tugrul had taken direct control over Iraq and the western portion of Iran, while Suleiman and Al-Barslan's dad, Chagri, had taken the eastern half. When Chagri died, Al-Barslan inherited dominion over these lands, and now that uncle-slash-stepdad Tugrul had died, Al-Barslan was making a bid for the whole thing. And he would be successful in this, becoming the second Seljuk Sultan. In this role, he would be aided by his vizier, Nizam al-Mulk. Literally translated, his name means the Order of the Realm. And that's what he was. Nizam al-Mulk was a native Persian who had originally served the Ghaznavids as a government official. As you might remember, when the Seljuks conquered the Ghaznavid lands in Persia, they had retained most of the existing Persian administrative infrastructure. And this is how Nizam al-Mulk came into the service of the Seljuks. Nizam al-Mulk will have a huge impact on Seljuk administration and bring even more of the Persian elements in, as well as do his best to balance the competing interests inside the empire. Seljuk princes, Turkmen, local Persians, Arabs, Syrians, Armenians, the power of the Sunni Abbasid Caliph, and the growing influence of Shia groups. With Nizam al-Mulk handling the books, Al-Barslan concerned himself with weapons. Though, as we'll see, despite the fame he won for defeating the Romans at Manzikert, Al-Barslan's military campaigns were mostly focused on consolidating his domestic power, not beating down foreign powers. Even when he entered into conflict with neighbors, these endeavors were mostly aimed at gaining influence over various Turkmen groups, not expanding his empire. Al-Barslan remained trapped by a lot of the constraints his uncle, the first sultan, had been bound by. He needed to meet the needs of the Turkmen and their flocks of sheep, and he also needed to put down other powerful members of the Seljuk family. One of these threats popped up immediately. When Tugrul died, the Sultan's cousin, Kutlumush, had also seen the elevation of a mere child as an opening. Sharp-eared listeners might recall that Kutlumush's father, Israel, Seljuk's firstborn, had once been the most powerful of the Seljuks, and Kutlumush had inherited his father's followers, the Iraqiyas, who'd been named after their participation in raids in Iraq, back when Iraq represented the western border of the still-under-construction Seljuk Empire. Meanwhile, Tugrul and Chagri were sons of Mikhail, a second son of Seljuk. And it was only after Israel's imprisonment and subsequent death that Mikhail's line had become the dominant one in Seljuk politics. As the bulk of the Seljuk forces continued to move westwards from Persia into Iraq, Kutlumush and the Iraqiyas stayed one step ahead of them. In the 1050s and 1060s, Kutlumush and the Iraqiyas had made it their business to beat the ever-living snot out of the eastern Byzantine provinces in the regions of Armenia and Georgia. 
These were among the raids that triggered Monomachus' attempt to use Pechenegh forces to fend off the Turks, and it ended in the Pechenegh Wars. Part of the challenge the Romans faced in dealing with these raids was that these Turkmen were not exactly subordinate to the Sultan Tugro. As son of Seljuk's firstborn, Kutlumush commanded a lot of respect in the family. Indeed, even though at times Kutlumush got along with Tugro, at other times he posed a threat to the Sultan, much like our old friend Ibrahim Yino, who ended up strangled to death by a bowstring. Yet, when he rose up as a challenger to Al-Barslan, Kutlumush ended up meeting a similar if less gruesome, fate, dying in battle. However, Kutlumush's sons survived. The Seljuk's official internal history, the Malik Nama, says of this event, Alp Arslan wanted to kill everyone who belonged to Kutlumush and his followers, and he ordered them to execute his son, Suleiman Shah, although he was young. Nizam al-Muk, the vizier, did not consider this correct and said, killing them would be a mistake and a sacrilegious act. Al-Barslan therefore sent them to the border of the realm, so that they would settle in the frontier region of Islam, and the insignia of the emirate and the royal rank would be taken from them. As a result, they would be in contempt and misery. They appointed them to Diyar Bakr and Ruha. Suleiman Shah is the father of the sultans of Rum. So yeah, Kutlumush's son, Israel's grandson, Suleiman, will come to found the Sultanate of Rum or the Roman Sultanate, in the former Roman territory of Anatolia, and his son, Kilij Arslan, will be one of the primary antagonists of the First Crusade in 1096. Spoiler alert! As for Kutlumush's followers, the Irakiyas, around the time of his death, they seem to undergo a transformation. They disappear from the record, and appear to either have become, or at least fed into, a new entity, the Nawakiyas. Little is known about the Nawakiyas. They were Turkish in outlook and behavior, and in a lot of ways they align with the previous Iraqiyas, for example their support of Suleiman. But it seems that they might have been at least in part local Armenians under a Turkmen guise. As the Turkmen moved into regions like Syria, they often embedded themselves into a local power structure and acted as mercenaries for established locals, or simply aligned themselves with one particular side in a local dispute for one reason or another. So. It's easy to imagine how local Armenian groups, or really any other groups, might have joined up with or absorbed an arriving Turkmen group. Enough so that what came out the other end of the merger was definitely Turkmen in outlook. Whatever their origin, as I mentioned, a group of Nawakiyas would continue to follow the line of Seljuk's eldest son, Israel. Now that Kutlumush had died, they would line up behind his son, Suleiman, who would continue to pose a threat for the legitimacy of Mikhail's line. Al-Barslan and his son, Malik Shah. Back in the 1060s now, the great Seljuk Sultan Al-Barslan seems to have already been aware of the possibility for these western Turkmen groups to develop into rival powers. This was not only where Kutlumush had been based, but this was also where Ibrahim Yinal had been based. Both men had built up their base of power using raids into Byzantium to not only bring in large amounts of loot, always useful to win people over, but to gain legitimacy with the Muslims of the region, who viewed the Romans as infidel and eternal enemies. With Kutlumush gone, there was a bit of a power vacuum. Al-Barslan needed to bring the unattached Turkmen of the West under his banner and exert his own influence over the Muslims of Syria and Azerbaijan. So, he began a series of campaigns into the region of Greater Armenia in an attempt to boost his image. Immediately after coming to power in 1064, Al-Barslan led a raid into the Roman-controlled territories in the Caucasus. He was accompanied by his trusty vizier, Nizam al-Mulk, and his young son, 
Malik Shah. To describe the events of this expedition, I'll draw on the account of Matthew of Edessa. Now, Matthew was himself an Armenian, and not exactly super hip to Seljuk identity, and he's not really up to date on their internal politics. For example, he mistakes Albarslan for his father, Chagri. In general, Matthew's an interesting guy. He's writing just a few decades after these events, in the early 12th century. And as his name implies, he's from Edessa. But by his time, Edessa has already become the Uchamer County of Edessa, which had been established by the Crusader Baldwin in 1098. He himself is an Armenian Christian, and accordingly, he's particularly scathing of both the Latin Rite Franks and the Greek Rite Romans. He's a bit more sympathetic to his fellow Eastern Christians, and fairly unbiased in his treatment of Muslims. He rather likes Alparslan's son, the third Chaljuk Sultan, Malik Shah, for example. However, he's not so hot on Malik Shah's daddy. He describes Alparslan's foray into the regions of Georgia, also known as Alan, by the way, and Armenia, in this way. In the year 513 of the Armenian era, the Persian ruler Alparslan, brother of the Sultan Tugril, who after the death of his brother occupied the throne of the state, collected troops from the Persians, the Turks, and from all of Khuzestan right up to Sigistan. Going forth, full of rage, and with a formidable army, he surged ahead with venomous onslaughts, and moved forth like a river swelling up with tempestuous rage, and like a beast crazed by its bloodthirsty nature. He went forth and reached Armenia, and then, with a very large amount of troops, entered the country of the Elans, subjecting them to the sword and enslavement. He caused countless deaths of Christians, so much that no one is able to relate the calamitous events of this disaster to the Christian faithful, for they bitterly tasted death at the hands of the crazed and pernicious nation of the Turks. Because of the tremendous number of Turkish troops, all the plains were covered with their forces, and thus, all ways of escape were closed off. Many priests, monks, chief elders, and illustrious princes tasted violent death and became food for the beasts and birds. Yeah, his details might be a bit questionable, but Matthew is certainly a colorful writer. Albarsan's destruction of Georgia was so devastating that the Georgian king Bagrat surrendered to the sultan and became his client. He even gave the sultan his niece, a Georgian princess, as a wife. Anyway, so far, this sounds like a standard raid. But things took a twist when Albarslan set his sights on the city of Ani. Ani had once been the capital of the Bagratuni Georgian Kingdom, and one of the most populated cities in the entire world. In 1046, Monomachos had enforced a deal cut by Basil II to hand the city over to the Romans, and in this way, it had come under Roman control. It was a central hub of trade in the region of Greater Armenia, and the largest city for miles. But when Albarslan came a-knocking, well, I'll let Matthew take over. In this same year, the sultan very victoriously went forth, and being the venomous serpent of the Persians, came and entered Armenia. He became the instrument of the divine rebuking wrath of God upon this eastern people, and forced the entire Armenian nation to imbibe his bitter rancor. He spread the flaming fire of death to all the Christian faithful, and filled all Armenia with blood, the sword, and enslavement. Going forth, the sultan came like a threatening black cloud, and descending upon the royal city of Ani, surrounded it completely on all sides like a vicious serpent. When the population of the city saw this, they trembled in fear and prepared to battle against the Persians. The infidel forces, on their part, full of rage, made a savage assault and pushed the Roman forces back into the city, forcing them to regroup within its walls. Thus, by their formidable assault, the Persians put the city in great danger. At that moment, from dread of these vicious beasts all over the Christian faithful, trembled and shook. 
And fathers began to weep over their sons, and sons over their fathers. Mothers wept over their daughters, and daughters over their mothers. And brothers wept over their brothers, and lovers over their lovers. And thus, the whole population of Ani was in great danger, and the assault grew even more intense, so much so that the whole city quaked. Because of these prolonged assaults, the entire city began to pray and fast, and with tears and groans, together they cried out to God to deliver them from these ferocious beasts. For Ani was a very populated city, filled with tens of thousands of men, women, aged, and children. This city evoked the admiration of those who gazed upon it. Even the innumerable forces thought that the greater part of the population of Armenia was contained within its walls. Whew, Matthew would have made a great podcaster. Anyway, the city was besieged for 25 days, and just when it seemed Alparslan might have to give up and go home, Internal conflict broke out between the imperial administrator and the local dukes. This conflict led to the city's defenders abandoning the walls. And spying an opening, the Seljuks pounced. Going back to Matthew once again. When the infidel forces saw all this confusion, they went and related it to the sultan. But he wouldn't believe them. Nevertheless, when the infidel troops saw the ramparts undefended, they entered the city, and taking a child from its mother, brought it back to the sultan, and said, Let this be as evidence for you from the city that we have captured Ani. When the sultan heard this, he was greatly amazed, and said, Their god has delivered the impregnable city of Ani into our hands this day. Then he turned around with his army, and entered the city of Ani. All the infidel troops had very sharp knives, one in each hand, and the third between the teeth. Armed in this manner, they began to mercilessly slaughter the inhabitants of the entire city, cutting down great numbers of them like green grass, and piling up their bodies, one on top of the other, like heaps of stone. In a short time, the whole city was filled with blood. All the important Armenian princes and noblemen were brought before the sultan in chains. Beautiful and respectable ladies of high birth were led into captivity to Persia. Innumerable and countless boys with bright faces and pretty girls were carried off together with their mothers. Many saintly priests were burned to death, while others were flayed alive from head to toe, enduring painful wounds, all of which was horrible to those witnessing it. One of the nefarious infidels climbed to the top of the holy cathedral and pulled down the very heavy cross which was on the dome, throwing it to the ground. When the cross was pulled down from the dome, at that moment, violent thundering and heavy rains took place, and all the torrents of blood caused by the slaughter were washed into the Akurian River, thus cleaning the entire city of blood. You know, it's the little details, like having the heavy rains start just as the cross is removed from the dome, that make Matthew of Edessa a true Spielberg of his time. The Sakavani was devastating. But what was even more troubling was Alp Arslan's decision following the capture. Instead of leaving the city a wreck, he put an emir in charge of it and established dominion over the area. Now the goal might not have been conquest per se, perhaps it was just a way to implant Seljuk authority in the region, more aimed at the Turkmen and local Muslims that were based nearby. But this decision to hold on to conquered Roman cities was a decisive change, one that should have been met with a strong response from the Romans. However. At this time, Constantinos Dukas was still in charge, and for whatever reason, he showed no interest in retaliating, and so the raids continued. Dukas's decision makes little to no sense. A strong show of Roman strength would have been enough to encourage the Turkmen to raid elsewhere. After all, Alparslan wasn't looking to conquer the Romans, the raids were either led by smaller Turkmen groups or simply exercises to establish Seljuk authority in the area. These activities 
could have been directed elsewhere, and in just allowing Turkmen to continuously raid the eastern frontier, the Romans were advertising their military weakness to the world and encouraging the locals of these areas to look elsewhere for protection. We really don't have any good justifications for Ducas' decisions. Byzantine historian Anthony Caldellas puts it, His reign is frustratingly opaque. He seems to have been a good man, but lacking Monomachus' energy and sense of responsibility. Our sources claim that he defunded and downgraded the army, but it is difficult to know what that meant. If I could have the budget figures for one reign, it would be his. Psellos' panegyrics stress Ducas' victories over barbarians who are constantly pouring in against us, revealing a defensive anxiety about this issue that is absent from his previous orations. The non-reaction to the fall of Ani is hard to understand. Ateliates hints at a possible explanation. Seljuk advances had so far targeted mostly the heretics, such as Armenian non-Chalcedonians, and the Byzantines, including the pious emperor, may have thought it served them right. But soon the trouble would come to the Orthodox as well. Can we attribute such puerile thinking to Rome's imperial planners? That was fit for sermons, not strategy. There must have been money to raise armies. The emperors had not yet resorted to borrowing it from churches, though they would eventually. Why had Ducas not sent army after army as Monomachus had done? The frontier did not collapse during his reign, but its defenses seemed to have been weakened at a time when they should have been strengthened. Nevertheless, just a few years after the capture of Ani, Ducas was dead and replaced by everyone's favorite scapegoat, Diogenes. Diogenes pretty quickly set about mending his predecessor's wrongs and undertook a series of campaigns into Syria. If you recall, northern Syria mostly represented the border between the Byzantine Romans and the Fatimids. The Merdisid dynasty had been the local power since the beginning of the century and alternated in allegiance to the Romans and the Fatimids. However, various members of the Merdisid dynasty had begun to hire Turkish mercenaries to use in internal power struggles and... Uh, well, you can guess what happened. By the 1060s, northern Syria was the base of operations for various Turkmen groups that would periodically stage raids into Byzantium and then return to cities like Aleppo to sell their riches and slaves. Two groups in particular are of importance to us. One was led by a Turkmen named Afshin, who seems to have been loyal to and favored by Alparslan. And the second was a Nawakia group led by none other than Alparslan's brother-in-law whose name is a bit garbled in the sources, but was something like Ariskan. Ariskan was married to the Sultan's sister, Gauhar Katun, and he will play a pivotal role in Alparslan's decision to meet the Romans in battle at Manzikert. In 1068, Diogenes undertook a campaign into northern Syria, which can't be described as anything other than a success. He interrupted a Turkmen raid and recovered their plunder. Then, he made for the city of Manbij, which he captured. As a side note, the region of Manbij, like the rest of Syria, continues to be the staging ground for bloody, brutal conflict. Just a few years ago, in 2016, the US-led Manbij offensive took the city back from ISIL, and it's now a part of the autonomous Rojava sector of northern Syria. In 2021, I can only hope for peace in the region, and that's the main reason why I really do prefer my history hundreds of years ago. We know how it turns out. Well, turning the clock back a millennia, Diogenes' campaign into Syria clearly demonstrated Roman strength, though some raiding parties had been able to slip through the border and attack the empire. By taking Manbij, Diogenes put the empire in a much better position to defend its soft Syria-facing underbelly. 
In 1069, Diogenes' plans to follow up his efforts were derailed by the rebellion of uh, who else but a Norman mercenary. This one was named Roger Crepan. Crepan had actually been a part of Reconquista efforts in Spain, which was quickly developing into the second front of the Christian Holy War, following up on Norman efforts in Muslim Sicily, and soon to be joined by the First Crusade. Crepan then gravitated to work on the opposite side of the Mediterranean, as a Byzantine mercenary, and was stationed in Armenia when he suddenly rebelled and seized the taxes of the region for himself. He was eventually brought to heel, but his underlings continued to raid in the region after he was arrested. Anthony Caldellis summarizes the event this way. This episode should be flagged. We did not know exactly what Crepin was aiming for in his rebellion, and possibly he was only claiming back pay to which he felt entitled. But that was precisely how the Normans operated. Postulate a legal claim, real or invented, cause a disturbance, and see if something shakes loose. Crepin was the first of these Latin crusader types who tried to seize a piece of Byzantium for himself, and not in Italy. That was the problem with hiring Franks. They quickly turned on you, even as they were fighting the Turks on your behalf. Franks and Turks would fight it out over the corpse of Romania for centuries to come, and this was when it started. Yeah, as we'll soon see, the modus operandi for future Utremer rulers like Bohemund of Tarento, first prince of Antioch, was already being developed. If Crepin foreshadows the future role of Latin Christians in former imperial territory, then the general Filaretos Brachmios does the same for Armenians. Filaretos Brachmios, or in his native Armenian, Pilartos Varajanuni, was a distinguished general, and it was in 1069 that the Emperor Diogenes put him at the head of a large force to hold the frontier against Turkmen raiders, while Diogenes himself ran around chasing the raiders. In just a few years, though, Filaretos will be setting himself up as the autonomous ruler of a huge chunk of northern Syria and Armenia, from Antioch to Edessa. In both cities, Filaretos will provide a crucial transitionary stage between imperial possessions and Frankish Utremer states. But that's off in the future. In 1069, Filaretos was much less successful. Not long after being entrusted with the forces, he was forced into battle with the Turkmen leader Afshin, who defeated the imperial army under his command and proceeded to ransack the city of Iconion, which in a few decades will become the capital of the Sultanate of Rum, and today is known as Konya. Diogenes was able to cut the raiders off, and though they managed to escape, they had to abandon their plunder. Diogenes' strategy was very similar to that of Monomachos against the Pechenegs, consistent pressure on the raiders to make the looting of Roman cities a less attractive hobby. Diogenes was forced to stay in Constantinople in 1070. His mandate to rule came from his marriage to the widow Eudokia, and he was supposed to be just running the ship for Eudokia's eldest son from her first marriage, Michael Dukas, much how Nikephoros Phokas had handled things on behalf of Basil II a century prior. But a wrinkle had been thrown into the mix, in the shape of a baby. Diogenes and Eudokia had already had one son, and another would soon follow. This posed serious succession questions. So, to head off any possible problems, particularly from the previous emperor's brother and uncle to the current junior emperor, Ioannis Dukas, Diogenes stayed at home. But that doesn't mean the offensive stopped. In his place, Diogenes sent Manuel Komnenos, the nephew of the previous previous emperor, Isaacios Komnenos, an elder brother of future emperor Alexios Komnenos, who was now a teenager. Manuel went off to fight an incursion led by Alparslan's brother-in-law, Eriskan, who was at the head of a Nawakia force. Now, Eriskan had originally supported Alparslan for the Sultanate, but 
When Alparslan had made attempts at extending his power over the region of northern Syria, where Ariskan was based out of, their relationship had broken down, and Ariskan had turned against the Seljuk Sultanate. So, when he led his forces into the empire, his goal wasn't to raid, but to ally with the Romans. Now, maybe they did a bit of raiding on the side, so when Manuel Comnenos finally caught up with Ariskan, and Ariskan tried to explain that he didn't want to fight, he just wanted to ally with the Romans, Manuel wasn't buying it. So a battle broke out. But, after defeating Manuel's forces and capturing the general, Ariskan reiterated his desire to switch sides, and released Manuel unharmed as a sign of goodwill. So Ariskan was invited to Constantinople, and integrated into the empire as a general and a noble. The Romans were happy with their new Turkmen ally. Not only was this a capable force that, after all, had been able to defeat Manuel's forces, but Ariskan provided useful information on Turkmen tactics. However, Ariskan was being pursued by Afshin, who was under orders from the Sultan to capture the traitor. When he learned of Ariskan's defection to Byzantium, Afshin wrote to the emperor, stating, There is a peace treaty between us and you. When I entered your land, I did not harm anyone, but those Nawakiya are the enemies of the Sultan and have plundered your land and ruined it. You should hand them over to us, otherwise I will plunder your land, and the peace treaty between us will become void. When his demands were ignored, Afshin plunged deep into the empire, going farther west than any other Turkmen force had ever gone, sacking the city of Konai. And there would be an even bigger price to pay. It was this harboring of the fugitive Ariskan that brought the full force of Alparslan to bear on the Romans. As Afshin's letter mentioned, there was a bit of a peace treaty between the Seljuks and the Romans. All the raiding was being done by independent Turkmen, off the books, so to speak. Now that the Romans were meddling in internal Seljuk politics by harboring possible rivals to power, Albarslan was going to have to teach him a lesson. In 1070, Albarslan came back to the empire and captured the city his uncle had once besieged. Manzikert. The Seljuks' forces had evolved. Under the administration of Nizam al-Mulk, the horse-archer Turkmen forces had been rounded out by local forces, called gulams, basically mercenaries and slave soldiers. The Romans themselves had a wide variety of soldiers. Both local Roman Tagmata forces, as well as Pechenek and other Oghuz Turk forces, who used the same horse-archer tactics as the Seljuks. They also had a good deal of Frankish knights by now, heavy armored cavalry forces, of the kind we met in Norman Sicily. The Frankish forces were under the command of a certain Roussel de Bayoul, who will be coming up again. Remember, you can't trust these Franks. All in all, the Roman forces that Diogenes was able to muster for his 1071 campaign numbered about 40,000. The Seljuk forces they would be facing off against were maybe half or three quarters this size. So with both a home turf and a numerical advantage. Why did the Romans lose the battle? It comes down to bad intel, bad luck, bad decisions, and maybe a pinch of treachery. In 1071, Diogenes set out from Constantinople with the aim of reconquering Manzikert. The eastern edge of the empire was so devastated by raids that soldiers were instructed to bring rations with them for a campaign within the empire. Now, taking Manzikert itself was not going to be a problem. The real problem was that Diogenes was completely unaware that Alparslan was himself nearby. He thought the Sultan was near Persia. When he came across Manzikert, he quickly assessed his situation and determined he could take the city with just a small force. So he sent the better part of his army off to secure provisions in the surrounding region. This was the fatal mistake. Soon, Alparslan was himself upon them. It wasn't long before Diogenes realized his error, but by now it was too late. 
Some of his own Turkic forces defected to the Seljuks, and so reduced in numbers, when the Romans finally met the Seljuks in battle, they were badly defeated. Now, the military losses actually weren't all that serious. After all, the army had been split, but the moral victory was total. Diogenes became the first Roman emperor in 900 years to be captured by a foreign force. However, as we saw in the intro, Alparslan was not the danger. His own power base was. During his eight-day stay with the sultan, Romanos had urged Alparslan, Grant quickly my release before the Romans appoint an emperor other than myself, and I shall live up to the agreement, or else I shall not be able to arrive among them, and of these conditions which you imposed upon me, none shall be attained. And that had been an accurate assessment. While he was captured, the former emperor's brother, Ioannis Dukas, seized the day and had his nephew, Michael VII, proclaimed sole emperor, and Diogenes proclaimed an enemy of the state. There are even hints that Ioannis Dukas' son, Andronikos Dukas, who was present at the battle, betrayed Diogenes by preemptively announcing the death of the emperor and causing a panic that led to the Roman defeat. So, the Dukas clan might have just been waiting for any opportunity to bring down Diogenes. The new de facto region, Ioannis Dukas, released the rebellious Roger Carpan from prison and put him in charge of a military force to capture Diogenes, and after a few skirmishes, Diogenes turned himself in. He'd been promised clemency if he agreed to live his life out in a monastery, but this promise was not kept, and Diogenes was blinded. Supposedly, the job was done poorly on purpose, and Romanos died soon after. It was a cruel irony. His enemy had treated him with compassion and broken bread with him, and his own countrymen had had him blinded and cast aside to die. As for the Battle of Manzikert, it's the centerpiece of the Roman-Seljuk conflict, and for good reasons. Though the battle itself wasn't a devastating loss, it clearly marks the turning point for the empire, and the optics of the thing were even worse. Because the Romans could have regrouped and resumed their defense of the eastern frontier. For all it's touted as a glorious Turkish victory, Alparslan didn't really seem to care about it much. He certainly didn't follow up on it, and he seemed to have no intention to conquer all of Anatolia. He would soon die, and his vizier, Nizam al-Mulk, would take over control, ruling as a regent for the teenage Malik Shah. Instead of pressing their advantage against the Romans, though, Nizam al-Mulk and Malik Shah would be more concerned with the classic Seljuk pastime, putting down rival family members. In this case, Malik Shah's uncle, Kuvert. But the illegitimate way in which the Dukas clan had come to power by blinding the emperor broke the empire's spirit. The Byzantine historians themselves often portray men like Ioannis Dukas as the true villains. Alparslan might have been an infidel and a barbarian, but he comes across as righteous and at times even favored by God. The historian Ateliades writes of Michael VII, though, What do you have to say, Emperor, and those who made this impious decision with you? The eyes of a man who has committed no crime, but has given his soul for the prosperity of the whole empire of the Romans, and has offered resistance to the excessively belligerent nations with a strong army, while it was possible to stay in safety in the imperial palace and not to sustain any pains or fears of the military life. The eyes of a man whose virtue even an enemy respected, he embraced him honestly, spoke to him like a brother, and offered the captive a seat beside him. Like a good doctor, he gave a soothing remedy, these consolations, to this man afflicted by grief, so that the sultan, one may assume, rightfully took the victory from God the arbiter, for he proved to be such a man who demonstrated so great a measure of wisdom and patience. Indeed, for many Romans, the coming loss of Anatolia was the price to be paid for the betrayal visited upon Diogenes. 
And as I mentioned, this loss wasn't at the hands of Al Barcelon, but rather the work of a wide variety of opportunists, including, yes, some Turks, but not the Seljuk Empire itself. In the coming decades, Suleiman ibn Kutlumush, grandson of Israel ibn Seljuk, will use both military might and diplomatic shrewdness to establish the Sultanate of Rum. But the list of opportunists also includes men like the Frankish mercenary Roussel de Bayoul, who, spoiler alert, will follow in the steps of Normans everywhere and make a play at setting up his own little kingdom in imperial lands. And also on the list is one of the generals who had set out with Diogenes to Manzikert, the Armenian Filaretos Brachmios, who will set up an autonomous Armenian state in northern Syria. More than any other group, the Armenians, particularly in Edessa and Antioch, will be incorporated into Frankish aristocracy. And together, these two groups will form the backbone of Uchmer rule. Next time, we'll be taking a deeper look at the Armenians and their role in the politics of the time, which spans from the region of Armenia itself all the way down to Egypt.